The IHI Summit on Improving Patient Care is the destination for healthcare professionals committed to transforming primary care. With a changing healthcare landscape and a continuing shift to value-based care, Summit speakers and sessions will highlight efforts across the country to improve care for individuals and populations, while ensuring professionals and staff have the resources necessary to implement these improvements. Join us on April 11th to April 13th in San Francisco, California, to explore how you can improve the lives of patients. Learn more at IHI.org summit. Now, here's WIHI. Here's a common refrain these days. There's been progress with reducing certain types of harm and medical errors in healthcare, especially with hospital-acquired infections, but... Now let's fill in the blank. But there's plenty more work to do. But there remain way too many risks for patients. But it's hard to sustain progress and the gains. Now, if all these assertions are true... What difference would it make to the speed and breadth of progress if more people, not just healthcare improvers in the trenches, were part of a movement for safer care? What if the language of patient safety and medical errors were more accessible and widely understood? Well, that's what we're going to explore on this edition of WIHI, and I do want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we're offered live, and then you can find us on demand on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, on this edition of WIHI, we're going to focus on the ways in which patient safety, along with medical errors, are differently understood outside of improvement circles. And while these gaps can act as a barrier to broader engagement, including by many healthcare professionals, there are new recommendations about how to bridge them. So let me introduce them right now. Joining us by phone, Rose Hendricks is a researcher at the Frameworks Institute. She studies public thinking about social and scientific issues, and she tests frames that improve communications about those issues. As a cognitive scientist, Rose is an expert in the relationship between metaphor and thinking. That's one thing I found so intriguing, reading that sentence. And so I want to uh, extend a big welcome to Rose. Here in the studio with me, we've got Bill Berry. He's a principal research scientist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the associate director of Ariadne Labs, which he co-founded with Dr. Atul Gawande in 2012. He was on the team that worked with the World Health Organization to create the WHO Surgical Safety Checklist. Bill's been very busy ever since. Uh, Great to have you here. Thank you so much. Okay. And next to Bill, we have M.E. Malone. Is the de- she is the Deputy Director of the Betsy Lehman Center for Patient Safety. That's a Massachusetts state agency that coordinates research, data analysis, and communications to reduce medical harm. Now, the center is named for a Boston Globe Health reporter, Betsy Lehman, who died in 1994 from a preventable medical error while being treated for breast cancer. Her death became a catalyst for improving patient safety in Massachusetts and nationally. Welcome, M.E. 
Thank you, Matt. All right. Well, Emmy is going to kick us off. Emmy has been uh, in correspondence with me in one way or another, putting up with all my emails for about a year as we have been talking about this work and the different phases of it. So I'm very excited that we can uh, begin to present some of it to you hot off the press. Tell us briefly, I guess, about the Betsy Lehman Center and why you decided it was important to look at patient safety from the vantage point of communications beyond the usual suspects. Oh, great. Thanks very much, Madge. I'm really excited to be here uh, with you and, and with everyone uh, listening in. So very, very briefly, the Betsy Lehman Center for Patient Safety is a small, quasi-independent, and frankly, a relatively new state agency in Massachusetts. And what we try to do is fill in the gaps and coordinate efforts so that all of the actors, whether they be the healthcare providers, their organizations, healthcare agencies um, in our state can function together as a total system of patient safety. And so back in 2014 and 15, we were holding these meetings around the state to introduce ourselves and the center. And it was fairly apparent that people were struggling to understand what patient safety work was. Uh, they'd start off, you know, nodding very politely. Um, but then, you know, before long, they were telling us stories about a cousin who got an infection during a hospital stay or a parent who got the wrong heart medication. But they didn't instinctively connect those stories with the terms that we were using, like patient safety or medical error. And we saw that as a problem um, because we really think that what we need to do is enlist a larger and broader group of people to help make the case that when there are conversations about what constitutes a high-quality healthcare system, whether that's in the state or across the country, that those conversations need to be about more than cost or access or patient satisfaction. Um, and that safety really needs to be at the very top of our perfect healthcare system wish list. Um, and we think that's really hard to do if it simply isn't even on the radar for some very important constituencies. And so right around that same time, we became aware of this very unique research done by Frameworks Institute on other pressing social needs and issues. Um, and they actually received a MacArthur Genius Grant just a few years ago uh, for their work. And what they're good at is helping distill what the experts know about a complex but important social topic like patient safety and using a very scientific approach to finding new ways to bring that knowledge and understanding to a much broader audience of non-experts. So I'm going to talk briefly about the first part of some foundational research work that Frameworks did for us, which was published last year. And then Rose will talk about the most recent research that was released uh, just this week. And I want to also mention, uh, as Emmy is going, <coughs> excuse me, through this, all this is on uh, the Betsy Lehman website. Um, and we'll also post these uh, resources. But whether you start with the most recent and work backwards or start at the beginning and go, you know, get to this point, uh, it's all connected. And uh, so we're giving you the distilled version. So we really do invite you to look into this. There's a lot there. Yes, thanks, great. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh -huh. and, and I will take 
uh, two years <laughs> worth of work and try to distill it into into really two paragraphs. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so uh, the first thing we wanted to do was better identify what messages non-experts hear about patient safety. And this is members of the general public, it's policymakers, and it's even healthcare professionals who aren't seeped in patient safety work every day. And we needed to contrast that with what patient safety community has come to understand about risks and challenges. Uh, so for example, you know, we in the patient safety community know that medical harm can most often be traced back to some kind of a systemic shortcoming or error. Yet the average person reading the newspaper or watching the news is more likely to hear about a sensational story of malpractice. And, and this underscores kind of the individual nature of medical injury rather than the larger, more systemic concerns that we're all very familiar with. Um, and an additional challenge, and this was all very new to me and I think really fascinating, is that when those of us who are in the know about are talking about patient safety, Others are processing this information through a series of filters, uh, and Frameworks calls these cultural models. Um, and these are preconceived, often deep-seated notions that people will often bring to a new topic when they just don't know very much about it. And I'm going to give you three very quick examples, just so you'll have a better idea of what these models are and how they can affect communication about patient safety. Uh, so first, the first one framework is called the caring doctor model. And it's an idea that patients have that they'll be safe as long as they choose the right caring doctor. Doctor gets to know them. They get to know the doctor. Everything is terrific. But when people are thinking with this model, it's, it's hard to persuade them that there are bigger picture improvements needed to ensure safety for them and for others. Um, another we'll call the two air is human model. And people thinking this way are somewhat fatalistic. They assume that errors are inevitable. And so it makes it hard for them to recognize that if we invest time and resources, we can and actually will make a, a difference. Um, and the third one I'll mention is the notion that there are just some bad actors out there, some underqualified practitioners. And if we just weed those out, there will be no problems. Um, and so obviously that, too, is a fairly unproductive way to think about patient safety challenges as we know them. Uh, so with that, um, Madge, I, I think we could turn this over to Rose, who can talk um, much more in depth about the recent research uh, report that was just um, put out this week. One of the things as we turn to Rose, and thank you, M.E., is as I looked at these cultural models, they've been, uh, they have a lot of staying power. Uh, and uh uh, Emmy and I are both former reporters, journalists, mm -hmm. and reporters are often kind of stuck on these things, too. Uh, for whatever way reasons, there's sometimes easier stories for some people to tell. And that's, I think, some of the work uh, that's cut out for everyone, uh, is it? No knock against reporters <laughs> or the media. <laughs> just, I'm just aware of that, that right. it's, it's hard to move on. Uh, but uh, fabulous that you work with Frameworks. So, Rose, uh, you you also get the enviable task of distilling down even further all this work you've been doing. And welcome. Thanks. Hi. Thank you. Um, can you hear me now? Yes. And I'm going to, uh, you can go ahead. I don't know if you can touch your volume, but uh, uh, you can certainly speak up a little bit more. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much um, for having me. And I'll, so I'll try to kind of pick up where Emmy has left off. So, um, Emmy touched on some of the sort of 
pervasive assumptions that members of the public have when thinking about medicine and medical errors. And from there, we, um, you know, we set out to determine better ways of communicating that could bring those members of the public closer to patient safety experts and researchers in their understandings of, you know, the problems and what needs to be done. And we, you know, we did this um, by using a number of different methods. Some were qualitative, where we would present people um, in, you know, one-on-one -on -one interviews, actually on the streets in a few cities, or um, sort of focus group type methods, and others were more quantitative. So we used sort of controlled experimental methods to determine what different frames had what different effects. Um, and, and I can share a bit about, you know, what we learned. And, and the report that that's linked to in the comments, of course, has um, much more thorough explanation of the recommendations that come out of this research, as well as um, information about the, um, the the uh, evidence that, that those rest on. So um, starting first is sort of a almost obvious seeming recommendation, but actually something that's not often done, which is that you know, communicators must always clarify that um, what patient safety is and what medical errors are really talking about, in particular, that these refer to preventable events because um, especially patient safety and to some extent medical errors aren't on the public's radar. And so when you mention these terms, they kind of start thinking about maybe it's, you know, anything, an, an allergic reaction that, that one could not have anticipated, but that it's really important that um, these terms are defined in terms of their preventable nature and that people are provided with concrete examples, again, because this is not on the radar they really need to, um, to be given a sense of what, what even is at stake here, what are we talking about when we talk about medical errors. So that's sort of just one sort of higher arching um, recommendation that sort of needs to lead, lead off. Um, another really important recommendation that came out of our research is that it's really crucial to connect the dots between causes of errors and the solutions that we're advocating for. And, and this is because even though experts know how different solutions address the, the causes, um, the public doesn't necessarily see the links between those. And, and so they'll fill them in with default assumptions. Some of those, um, for example, the ones that ME uh, ran over at the beginning, which are often not very productive. So if they're not provided explanations to how the causes link to the solutions, they won't really understand why, why those solutions are necessary. Um, the slide being shown right now just shows a few examples of, of how one could do that by pointing to specific causes, those things on the left side, and explaining how those solutions on the right side, or of course many other solutions, um, would actually be effective in, in helping that, um, that problem. So that's another one, is to be very deliberate and explicit in linking causes to solutions. Um, the next recommendation that came out of our work is about the tone that's used. So um, there's a, a really big difference between what we call an efficacious tone, which is, tends to be more productive, and this is a sort of we-can-do-this type of, of tone, which conveys to people the fact that, um, you know, the, we, there are possible things that can be put in place, and they will have substantial effects on patient safety. Um, and, and this helps combat a sense of fatalism, which we found was very common. People have this feeling that, well, 
as, as Emmy shared, to error is human, and so errors will happen no matter what. There's really nothing we can do. But we found that this efficacious tone was much more effective than a crisis tone, which is a, a much more sort of urgent, um, negative, a little bit more negative in its urgency type of tone. And, and we found that the efficacious tone was actually uh, much more effective in, in all three of the measures that are shown here, and this is on the quantitative survey experiment. So that efficacious tone increased support for the kinds of policies that um, experts recommend. They increased an understanding of what causes medical errors and what needs to be done, as well as this sense of collective efficacy, this sense that we can collectively uh, make strides on this problem. Um, the next one I wanted to share is, is sort of the importance um, when talking about prevalence of medical errors. It's really crucial to not throw out a statistic sort of on its own, um, but rather to explain prevalence, to situate any numbers or talk of how common errors are in, in the context of what causes them and, and what needs to be done. Because once people start thinking about um, the potential causes of medical errors, it's much easier to wrap their heads around um, the fact that there are many of them rather than sort of putting a number or a statement out there on its own. And then the last um, recommendations I'm going to share are about explanatory metaphors that we tested. So we use explanatory metaphors to really help make kind of abstract and complicated concepts a lot more clearer and sort of tangible. And, and the first metaphor that we explored and found to be especially effective is one that the field actually already uses, and that's um, comparing healthcare to aviation. So aviation is especially great for talking about what can cause medical errors and the kinds of solutions that need to be done. But fortunately, because we, um, we explored this metaphor in a few different uh, methods, we also learned a bit about the caveats um, and how to use this. And, and the biggest thing that came from that is the sense that it's really important it's not used in a way that sort of taps into consumerism. So referring to airline customers is not as great as referring to passengers, for example, because customers really kind of brings us into thinking about the commercial aspect, and then it leads people to think about healthcare in consumerist ways and start thinking about the importance of you know, getting what they pay for or quality or, I mean, convenience or wait times or something like that. So um, any kind of language and description of aviation that really steers clear of that consumerism and instead focuses on um, the safety aspect of, of aviation is especially helpful. And you'll see there's um, an example on, on that slide as well. Um, one other kind of caveat here, I see this, um, this note on the, on the screen about patient empowerment. We actually found that the term empowerment was not very helpful among some groups of participants and actually backfired and decreased their support for solutions. Um, but this doesn't mean that you have to completely avoid talking about patient empowerment because, of course, that's, that is one of many necessary solutions. Um, so, our recommendation coming from here is just about the importance of communicating the idea without the term. And again, you'll see an example on the slide that I, I won't walk through now, but that you can revisit later on. Um, and then the final metaphor that I, I did want to share is that of, of a fail-safe. And so this is an interesting metaphor because the name alone sort of says, says the important parts. And, and for that reason, it can be used in really kind of quick, concise ways. 
But the idea that fail-saves automatically kick in to catch errors before they cause harm, this was really understandable and really sticky with members of the public. That means they really were able to repeat it, elaborate on it, use it to think, um, and, and especially to think about the kinds of solutions and maybe in particular the kinds of technological solutions that um, would be especially effective um, for, for increasing patient safety. This can also interestingly be used with aviation, so members of the public were really able to combine those two and talk about, oh yeah, there are fail-safes in aviation and kind of enumerate those and again draw, draw back to um, fail-safes in healthcare using that broader um, metaphor of, of aviation. So I think with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over, and of course, I'm, I'd love to dig into any of these in the in the Q and A. But um, we'll also just point you all again to the report, where you can get a lot richer information about all of these and a few other recommendations as well. Thanks so much, uh, Rose. I'm going to keep you here just for a second in some of your opening remarks. Um, as we, I know some of this may also come from the earlier research as well as, so we're sort of combining with the new report. But I thought some of these things about tensions, about what we think we're saying, <laughs> or what we're saying and what we think is understood and may not be being taken in that well. And uh, the whole idea even um, about focus on humans, human stories, and here we are in the improvement world talking a lot about uh, systemness and that that's part of the solution, uh, and, which doesn't necessarily mean it's not human, but it is a frame. And we have this uh, unfortunate, or maybe this is just reality, uh, people don't necessarily uh, have the most positive feelings about systems. Um, so I thought, do you want to say anything more about that? Uh, and and whether or not, that seems to me a, a pretty good trampoline for folks to be thinking in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, this is something that was really a big takeaway from the first phase of our research where we, we realized that people were thinking of systems in all the ways that you see here and generally um, negative ways other than, of course, being efficient. And, and they really didn't like thinking about that in terms of their, um, their health care. They really preferred human care. But um, we, we did find that those frames, the kinds of recommendations that I just shared, were particularly helpful in broadening people's ideas of what even a system can mean. And, and that's, um, that's really crucial because, again, if, if it's not explained with examples and, you know, explanations, um, and things that are concrete, people will default to thinking about these kinds of systems that are impersonal and burden, burdensome, for example. But um, when using some of the, the kinds of recommendations we made, for example, the maybe the aviation one, which highlights systems and protocols and, and things like that, um, we found that we were actually able to reorient people towards systems without necessarily using that word, you know, systems or, or that phrases associated with it. But not that those are problematic, but um, alone they are, they're kind of insufficient and can actually tap into some of these tense um, cultural models. And, you know, the only other comment I wanted to, to make about that is that it kind of relates to this, this phenomenon often referred to as the, the curse of knowledge. So, of course, people in the field are really understanding um, of why it, why it is that systems are necessary and what is meant by systems. And, and we can actually take that for granted often when we're communicating and, and forget, of course, that 
members of the public aren't even thinking about this issue very much. And so when we talk about systems, we've got to really explain what that is in order to sort of circumvent those default kind of um, resistant ways of thinking about it. Thank you. And uh, before I turn to uh, Bill, I think of a good uh, segue there around fail-safes and uh, checklists. I want to just ask you about this one more thing I want to draw a line under, talking about medical care rather than health care. And yeah. given how much, uh, I guess, certainly health care is uh, in the news and talked about nonstop, um, what is the significance of this uh, in terms of uh, wanting to get folks uh, more focused on safety? Yeah, it's a great um, – thank you for bringing this up because it seems like a small thing, but we actually discovered is quite big. And, and um, you know, to give you a quick story of how we, we came about this is actually I was um, um, doing some interviews on the streets of Minneapolis. And, you know, we had started these interviews off by asking people what comes to mind when you think of healthcare, because we always like to get them thinking about the broad topic before we bring in the specific one. And people almost always went in the direction of insurance and started talking about costs. And, and really what they were doing is getting themselves into a really consumerist way of thinking about medicine that was often hard to, to bring them back. Even once I started talking about errors and and patient safety, they were they were like, oh yeah, but that cost thing. And so we actually pivoted in the middle of conducting interviews, which is fairly rare for us to do because we realized that um, you know it was actually the, the the term healthcare was becoming an obstacle to getting the data that we needed. Um, and and I really think that that's because of its sort of um, associations with insurance and therefore money and consumerism. But once we pivoted to talking about medical care. We didn't have nearly the same problem. We had people thinking about the actual care itself, and we were able to much easily, much more easily bring in the idea of safety. So it's just a really interesting kind of um, anchoring point for people is that the first term they hear when, when this topic is brought up is really crucial. And, um, and I think it's not that the term healthcare should never be used, of course, but we found that when, when really starting off like that, medical care had a much greater ability to focus people where, where we needed them to be focused. Okay. Thank you so much, Rose. Thanks for elaborating. Uh, a reminder, you can, uh, we sent these slides out ahead of time, but you can certainly keep down, you can download them now or after the show and kind of look through some of this again. All right. I want to turn now to Bill Berry, uh, thinking about, we've already got a very, uh, a few comments going on about fail safes and whether we really even have them, uh, in healthcare. So I don't know if I want to put you on the spot around that one, Bill knows a thing or two about checklists, but maybe uh, as your, uh, let me first get some of your general remarks about this work, and then maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit of your thoughts about fail-safe as, a, as an important metaphor and its value. Well, very first thing I want to do is to thank you all for having me here to, to be able to give a few comments and uh, thank the center, the Betsy Lehman Center, for launching on this work. I You know, I've been at this since the late 1990s with the publication of Te Air is Human, and we're at its 20th anniversary now, which is pretty amazing, which means we have two decades of focusing on patient safety under our belt now, and yet we get to right now, and we're all disappointed, and that, I think, is what's driven this work. And, you know, what 
my big takeaway from this is you really want to know why things aren't moving. You have to go talk to people and you have to listen. And I think that's the big contribution from frameworks is that they went and they listened. And they listened not only to patients, but they also listened to providers. And this report is filled. I mean, you've just heard a very high-level pass through what's in the report. It has some fantastic recommendations. Like, particularly, I was struck by this medical care, health care thing. And then I went back. The place where I work, our mission is health systems innovation. And and so I got three words now, none of which make any sense to people outside of medical care, and that's what I do every day. And I think that this really brings a focus to how important language is when we want to communicate. There's actually larger lessons in here. Well, when I was listening to the everything that's come before me today, there are a lot of lessons here that could be drug over by healthcare, healthcare, medical care professionals into other things like patient consent because, you know, if you really want to know what they heard, you got to ask. And so this, the work is incredibly inventive. I learned a lot of things by reading this report that I think are helpful. And, and I also know what the next steps are, which are to take all this information and then come up for a, a strategy to be able to turn all this into useful things that people can actually do. Um, it's interesting. The findings in here, some of them, like the medical care, health care, never would have come to me. So that is one of these things where it's incredibly valuable to have places like frameworks from outside of healthcare come and do this kind of work. Because I think we're so contaminated by living inside the system, it's hard for us to see those kinds of things. But the other thing this did for me was to reinforce a lot of the things actually that I already believed, but they provide a, a little bit of science behind some of it. Certainly their findings around healthcare professionals and why they're not so engaged and what we really need to keep front and center. You know, it. we are trying really, really hard, honestly, I think, as patient safety people to move away from blame of individuals towards fixing the system that often sets the individual up. And if we're really going to sell this message to healthcare professionals, we need to walk that talk, right? We need to move away from blame. And we've been doing that for, for a long time, but clearly we have further to go. And go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 no. Uh, go ahead. Um, I don't want to uh, break your flow here, Bill. I did put up the slide here that, um, you know, reminds us of some of the findings about healthcare professionals. And um, at first, I was surprised in a way that healthcare professionals might need somewhat similar approaches as the general public, and no knock against either. Uh, but I was trying to think to myself, uh, what what is that barrier, you know, with healthcare professionals? So maybe you could just zoom in on that a little bit more since you're around a lot of healthcare professionals. Well, I, I mean, I yeah. think for those of us that do this kind of work a lot, our audiences are often filled with the converted, right? And, and sure, those people understand systems, but there are a whole lot of other people out there who aren't converted 
and they don't get the idea. Honestly, healthcare professionals, they don't get the idea of systems. They actually, and and you know, and it's part of the reason for burnout. People feel very personally accountable when things don't go well, right? They don't look at the system as a potential contributor at minimum to a lot of things that happen. And I think that you know that's I, the public may be a little further over on the spectrum, but I think that's pretty pervasive in healthcare. And then the last piece of the report talks about something that I believe in deeply. And if we want healthcare professionals to really focus on it, we've got to answer the what's in it for me question and don't make my life harder, right? Um, I know we all, we all know that, but again, a lot of times the solutions that we come up with are so complex that they burden the provider with even more burden than they already have. And, and those kind of things just frankly have lost the game in a lot of things we've been trying to do. Well, thank you, Bill. And um, we're all kind of nodding away in here. <laughs> I don't know what everyone else is doing. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's already jumped right into the chat for your questions and comments. We're going to pick up on some of these themes. Uh, a reminder that uh, we are putting in links there to take you to the Betsy Lehman website and the landing page there that has all the research they've been doing on there with much more uh, thorough work. I want I wonder if I can just, because this came up a couple of times in the thread here, Bill, ask you, Bill was very involved, or as I said earlier, and has been very involved in the surgical safety checklist used now around the world and, you know, very much uh, championed by the World Health Organization. That came to mind for me as the closest thing in healthcare that I was thinking in a way was maybe sort of a fail-safe or designed that way, not necessarily high-tech fail safe uh, as we try and go through what goes on in an airline, you know, uh, accident and that kind of thing. Am I right in saying that, that that's the intention? Because we partly have people on the chat saying there is no fail safe really in medicine because it needs to be, there needs to be something that's a redundancy. And that's how, what that definition implies. Yeah. I th I, actually, when I read through this report and went through the section on fail safe, I mean, to me as the kind of expert that I am with checklists and that kind of thing, a fail-safe is a very, it's a specific engineering term. Um, actually, there's fail-open and fail-closed, and but fail-safe means, just, just like Rose said, it means exactly what it is. If something fails, it fails <laughs> in a way that doesn't cause harm, right? So if there's something wrong with your car, the computer in the car won't let you start the car because it would be unsafe. That is a classical kind of fail-safe. As soon as you started to talk about it, I started to run through my mind, are there things, are there very many things in healthcare that actually have fail-safes um, built into them? My, my guess would be that there are mechanical devices, IV pumps, there are other things that have been engineered to not work if working would cause an unsafe condition. But, you know, the word redundancy to me is, is part of what comes up when I think about checklists because um, some of the checks that our checklists ask for are double checks, 
right? The patient's identity is probably checked four times before they roll into the OR, and yet they will have a redundant check. That's not really a fail-safe. That, that to okay. me, is just a double check. Okay. But that, that whole idea, I mean, I think fail-safe, you know, is a larger category of things, is very, very powerful because it directly addresses system things, right? And that's where you want to build safety in, right? If something fails, that it causes no harm. Okay, thank you. Well, um, we're learning as we go here, and uh, I appreciate uh, clarifications and also everyone's discussion on that. Uh, there's a question, uh, maybe I'll uh, start with Emmy on this and Rose can jump in, and it may be me that, I don't know, I may have used the word barrier. Uh, you guys may not have. <laughs> Somebody asks the question, maybe we should look at some of these cultural models as challenges as opposed to barriers. Uh, Emmy, thoughts on that? Yeah, that, I think that's really very, very fair. Um, and also, I didn't you know, want to jump too deep in, but there were other um, cultural models that came up in this, in this initial research that are actually fairly helpful, um, things where both the provider community and members of the public um, saw some common um, – were on common ground about problems within the healthcare system that do – uh, reflect on safety. And so one of them is attention overload and this idea that how can this doctor or this nurse or this tech keep all of this straight when when they're being asked to, to do so much in a short period of time. So that's a, that's, a, that's a model that we could potentially build on when we're talking about, about safety. Um, and another one is the fragmentation within the healthcare system. Patients feel that very, very acutely, as do frontline providers. And so there again, there are there are models that are out there um, that, when used uh, correctly, um, can also help us talk a little bit more clearly about what it is uh, that that we're doing and we're trying to accomplish. I appreciate that, Rose. Anything you want to add uh, to that? Um, and uh, I thought maybe you could say even a little bit more about uh, tone and uh, kind of crisis uh, ways of talking about things. While we all, um, an awful lot of the news we consume, it seems, really gets our attention sometimes because it is a crisis, but it may not be the thing that's really going to help us most understand solutions. Um, and is that something you felt uh, that you encountered a qu uh, quite a bit, Rose? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do want to echo what Emmy said, because um, cultural models are um, actually, we, we, we aren't going to change them with just a single um, message or even a number of messages. They are pervasive and they're lasting, durable ways of thinking across culture. And so, uh, they aren't barriers because we know that even with those cultural models, people can think productively about patient safety. And so the real question is, is you know, what ways of communicating leverage the productive ones, and Emmy pointed out a few of those, and then sort of avoid cueing those that are less productive. So um, I do think that's a really useful clarification. And then, you know, the second question you asked was about tone, and yes, uh, you know, media tends to take a crisis tone, and that is what gets people's attention. And um, the, the real big problem with it, though, is that a crisis tone set, sends the message that, you know, um, 
all is lost. And that taps into a sense of fatalism that we actually know people already have. And so really, we don't want to reinforce that in any way. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, so, so basically, avoiding language and um, messages about the dire situation we're in, especially if those aren't accompanied by solutions talk, is what will lead to that fatalism and, and really nothing productive can come from it. On the other hand, that efficacious tone is, um, you know, it, it does still need to be forthcoming about the fact that there is a problem and things need to be changed. We're not necessarily suggesting that everything should be sugar-coated, but rather to make it clear that change is possible and make it clear what change would look like as well. Thank you. Uh, I want to acknowledge uh, some input. We do have people from uh, outside the United States who tune in uh, live uh, to WIHI, including from neighboring Canada. And uh, somebody wrote in the chat that the term healthcare is used in Canada more to imply the broad system outside the hospital. When people talk about medical care, they might be thinking more in terms of what goes on in the hospital and healthcare would encompass community care, outpatient, et cetera. Um, interesting question that's come up um, about the idea of patient, the word patient itself. Um, and two different or a couple different uh, points being made here. One is whether that continues to be a beneficial concept, uh, the patient calling uh, somebody a patient in terms of their relationship to the system. I wonder if maybe Bill has some thoughts on that. I don't know if it came up in the research. And also whether patient advocates can become even more ambassadors. I mean, and this gets into a little bit with what do we do with all this? You know, who's going to carry it forward? Bill, your, your thoughts about that? Well, I've been in countless discussions about the word patient um, and trying to come up with another word that describes the human being when they end up interfacing with our healthcare system. And unfortunately or unfortunately, we're left with a word that comes from the Latin that means to suffer. Um, I guess if you think about being a patient and waiting in a waiting room, you definitely are a sufferer. Um, I, I don't know that how much energy we should spend on trying to fix the patient thing, honestly. Okay. All right. I, I appreciate that. Um, and I, it's fine. You know, anything goes. Bring up all these different issues here. Emmy? Well, then I think to the second part of your question of what do we do with this information that we have, um, and I think that's really an excellent question. And Rose outlined some of the very concrete suggestions that are in this uh, research. They actually call it a message memo. It's not a typical research report. So when you dive in, uh, just, you know, the expectations should be just a little bit different. Um, and, you know, so those concrete suggestions, I think we could all begin right away, looking at the material on our websites and in our newsletters and, and just uh, starting to tweak some of the language. Um, and that's that's just an immediate step. But there's longer-term work uh, that needs to be done here, and we really intend 
to to spearhead that. And we'll be working with organizations like IHI and others who are um, in the healthcare safety space. Um, and we'll be working to develop very specific strategies and tactics that can be used by anyone in the field who's interested in trying to start shifting their the language or really the frames through which people view their patient safety principles and challenges. Um, Frameworks actually has deep experience at helping communicators in other fields with this kind of work as they're trying to recast their messages. Um, and we're in conversations with them. Um, there are just some really interesting and creative approaches that people have taken. You know, so one organization was interested in talking more about climate change, um, and they really saw docents at aquariums and zoos and natural history museums as perfect uh, folks to be talking about climate change and how it affects the animals. And so that particular organization chose to really work at, at the ground level. Um, another organization that was working on some challenges in of, uh, development in childhood used more of a top down approach. So it was a small field of some key experts and they got together and they became very proactive about writing op-eds or testifying on the Hill or <coughs> being the person quoted in, in a documentary. Uh, so there are a number of different ways that we can go about this. And, and I'm, I'm personally, as, you know, as a former journalist and one who really does care a lot about communication, I'm very interested in, in trying to take um, this really excellent and groundbreaking research and putting it into practice for our organization and all of the others uh, that are in this space. Thanks, M.E. Um, Bill, I wanted to ask you um, one question we always like to try and address on a WIHI. Uh, a lot of practical folks joining us. Who should people talk to next who are on this program? Um, we both are sort of, we're all dealing with this issue of kind of sometimes insiders and outsiders in terms of everybody, you know, what people are understanding. But you've got to get some of the people inside interested in kind of uh, maybe adjusting <laughs> what folks are talking about. You're, you've been inside a lot of these systems. Any thoughts that you have about where do you go with this? You're going to read, people I hope will read the reports. Maybe folks will point to the audio cast and ask people to tune in. What would you do next? Well, I mean, I think Emmy has already touched yeah. on, on some of it, honestly. Yeah. Uh, first, to look at this and take away some of the messages. And then, I mean, there are immediate things that an organization could do to try and realign their own messaging with a lot of the recommendations that are in here. And I'm going to guess that that varies depending on the position that the, the people who have called in have in their organizations who they would want to go to um, go to next. I, I also, I mean, I look forward to the next stage of this work, which is which is actually, I think, trying to figure out how to build the campaign that it will take to take this these messages and actually get them out into the world. Um, I think just just like all the patient work in patient safety, the context that every single person is sitting in who has called in here, they are so different and so variable that the way that this kind of work can be applied um, is going to have to be very, very individualized to the organization. Thanks, Bill. Rose, some of your thoughts? 
kind of next steps? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of really great stuff has already been said, but I, I really like the way of thinking about it that um, pairs immediate sort of there are some takeaways from that report and from our conversation today that, you know, folks can change the terms they're using or, you know, build in a bit more explanation to connect causes to solutions and, you know, make sure they're not using terms like system or uh, just without explanation or prevalence without explanation. Um, so there are those sort of immediate things. And then there is a longer term sort of endeavor, which is to continue the conversation among those within the field and um, to really deploy these kinds of strategies more um, across more people and in more depth. So, of course, the, you know, patient safety, the field can become a much more explanatory field over time. That's certainly something that takes a lot of getting used to and practice. But um, yeah, I think, so I think there's important short and long-term activities here. Okay, sounds good. Uh, well, Mo, you know, this might be a good moment to at least remind something everybody of something IHI uh, <laughs> we hope do a pretty good job at and a good, good moment to just uh, let people know. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Just want to remind everyone that the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, is hosting its Patient Safety Congress from May 15th to 17th in Houston, Texas. It's a must-attend event for those who continue to shape smarter, safer care for patients wherever it's provided, from the hospital to outpatient settings to the home. Discover keynote speakers, uh, over 25 sessions, and immersion workshops you can attend at IHI.org slash Congress. We hope to see you there. All right. Thanks so much, Mo. Let's go back to the slide that has uh, public and uh, the, the key communication tasks. This one, uh, I think, is kind of central uh, in terms of sort of some next things. What do we mean here by shift professionals' understanding of the healthcare professional patient um, and relationship? Um, I assume I'm. I, should I ask Rose that? Is that a good one? Or Emmy, you want to take a stab at it? What What is it that we're asking healthcare professionals to better understand about that relationship? Uh, I, I oh, go ahead. All right, Rose. Go ahead, Rose. Jump right in. Thanks. Sure. Yeah. So this is something that we saw among members of the public as well as among healthcare professionals. Is this? Um, I believe in the in the reports you'll see it as authoritative authoritative doctor compliant patient cultural model. And so it is what it sounds like this assumption that, you know, the doctor does know what's best and that the patient's job is simply to comply. And of course, while some of that is true, compliance is important and doctors are certainly um, very knowledgeable about, about what they're doing, that kind of cultural model shuts down thinking about um, the role that patients can and should be encouraged to play in, in advocating for themselves and asking questions, flagging things that come up. And so um, that's what we were looking to shift away from, this really sharp power dynamic um, towards something that is, of course, still, um, yeah, still recognizing the, the authority of the doctor, but yet in a, a way where patients are much more, as I said earlier, empowered, though we, we do try to avoid that word now, now finding out that it backfires with some, but, but in other words, sort of that patients feel comfortable and know that it, that they can speak up and ask questions. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. And what's the fatalism about? Bill, what would you say is kind of the fatalism that we're dealing with right now? 
I think that's just humanity, honestly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, we live in a complicated world and all kinds of things happen around us constantly that we can't explain. I mean, sometimes we can, but there are tragedies in the world and people know about them. And so I think a lot of us, most of us actually have this fatalistic attitude towards certain things for certain. And when you're looking at this this nebulous thing that we call the the healthcare system. I think when you're a patient and you're looking at this this huge monolith and you're you expect things are going to go wrong and you know, you know, and to a certain extent you're going to accept that. Not that I don't think that happens across the board though. Um I actually I think the different ways that the different models people hold in their head actually it's probably directly related to how fatalistic that they are mm-hmm. about things. And Rose, did you find that? I, I mean, it's there on both sides, public and healthcare professionals. Did that come up in people's comments? Fatalism, a- absolutely. It came up in their comments, um, you know, in the absence of any other information from us, and it came up in their comments in, in response to some of the least effective frames, like the, the crisis frame, for example. We saw a lot more fatalism after someone had encountered a message that was really presented in a sort of crisis tone way. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Well, we are going to wrap up. I'm going to ask one, I'm going to um, throw out something. I could be uh, dead wrong here. Burnout. Burnout has physician burnout in particular. People then sometimes also talk about nurse burnout, but I would dare say physician burnout seems to be grabbing much more attention. Is that an effective way to communicate uh, what's going on right now um, in in healthcare? Anybody want to try that one? <laughs> that was my surprise question to everybody. Emmy looks like she's willing. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I mean, I think that goes back to the idea of this attention overload um, and fragmentation within the healthcare system and the fact that, that patients see that as well um, and practitioners are feeling that. And so when we're looking at ways to explain how um, to improve safety, we need to be cognizant of that, that, that safety can't be another project that people do. Um, and so I think that this helps, helps us a little bit with some of the language and, and, and how, you know, we need to bring the practitioners on board as part of the system of safety rather than having the safety system be something that's imposed upon them. Okay. Bill, any thoughts? No, I think it goes back to that whole what's in it for me, yeah. make my life easier. And I think on the on the side of us coming up with interventions to improve patient safety, that we really need to think hard about how to make people's lives easier, how to make things more simple, not more complicated, and still be able to solve the problem. And, you know, as somebody that was drawn to this idea of a simple checklist to solve a handful of problems, it really is, in a sense, it's trying to do that. If we can get people to use it, we can actually show them that it shortens the operation. It doesn't lengthen it. The time that it takes comes back because it keeps you from getting into trouble later on. That kind, that spirit of fixing these kinds of problems, I think we need to do a much better job at it. And some of the fixes don't even have to be apparent 
to practitioners, right? And there's a lot of work to do there, and we're, we're nowhere near done. Okay, but we're going to counter fatalism <laughs> on uh, – okay. I want to really thank everybody who's been uh, with us today on this live ride and really uh, recommend you dig into the materials. Uh, it's true on WIHI. We just kind of dive into the deep end of things, and then we invite you maybe to go back to the shallow end and uh, uh, take a look uh, at some of the materials that uh, we've been uh, – uh, discussing today. So big thank you to M.E., Bill, and Rose. Uh, maybe I should ask M.E., though, because people are going to be watching this space. There is another phase to all of this, right? So this, we call this phase two at this point, <laughs> two and a half. And then then what happens? So uh, then, as I was saying earlier, we'll, uh, we'll be working with a number of organizations across the country uh, who are dedicated to uh, safety improvement work and talk about um, setting out very specific uh, strategies and tactics for reframing the way that we talk about this this topic. Um, and I don't know quite what that will what the end product will look like, but stay tuned. We will definitely have one. Okay, that sounds really good. So uh, you have email addresses on everybody's bio slides uh, on this WIHI if you'd like to be involved or think that you could be helpful with solutions. So we invite you to take advantage of that and all the materials. A big thank you again to our panel and to the audience today. A reminder, you can download this chat when you get off the program today, and it'll also be posted to our website as of tomorrow, along with audio and slides. And next up on WIHI, we're going to be uh, back in April talking about what's an apology worth. Uh, speaking of medical errors, uh, another opportunity to bring people into solutions, uh, even in the face of unfortunate and sometimes tragic uh, events. So I hope you'll tune in to that. Um, check out those archive pages. And if you go to iTunes, you know you can subscribe to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and then the show comes down in your feed automatically. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at ihi.org. Great group of people help make this program possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Mo Berry, Val Weber, and Pat McTiernan. And I want to send a special thanks to Emmy for giving IHI the opportunity to talk about this work uh, in its fresh new uh, form as a report um, right out of the gate. So um, a great opportunity for us too. It's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for tuning in. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks for listening to this edition of WIHI. We hope you'll join us in San Francisco from April 11th to April 13th for the IHI Summit on Improving Patient Care. Learn more at IHI.org slash summit.